want to read the passage of Scripture we're going to be studying this morning from Matthew chapter 5. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it to Matthew chapter 5, a very short passage this morning and uh, so characteristic of the Sermon on the Mount, which is the name of the section of the Bible that we are in. It is both short and very hard-hitting. So buckle your seatbelts, open your Bibles, <laughs> take a deep breath, and together we will all live through this because God is good. Now everybody's going like, what are you about to read? It's not that bad, but it's heavy. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Jesus speaking. It was also said to you, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's God's word for us today. Would you indulge in one more uh, moment of brief prayer for me and for us as we move into this? Father, give us the heart to hear your word, not my weak and croaky voice, but Father, to hear your heart speaking truth and grace to people who desperately need it, that it would reform us as a people, us the members of this church, the, the members of your kingdom who are your followers, to be better and more perfect reflections of who you are in a world around us who need your love and grace. Give us ears to hear, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. When I was um, in college, which was a few more years ago than I would care to admit, <laughs> but I still do remember it, um, I had a part-time job working in the campus music library, and one day I was there working, and a fellow student who also worked there came in for his work shift, and uh, I noticed he was wearing a chain around his neck with uh, uh, some sort of a pendant on it that I recognized as new. I hadn't seen it, so as he got closer and closer, I was sort of looking at it, and I realized eventually um, it looked familiar. I couldn't quite place it, and then suddenly it occurred to me. It was the... Um, quick-release lever for the front wheel of a bicycle. And he had Claire found it somewhere, got it off his bike, I don't know, and put it on a chain and put it around his neck. And he noticed I was looking at his uh, new accessory as he walked in, and he was, I could tell he liked that. <laughs> and so I said, hey, what is that? That, that looks like the quick-release lever from a bicycle. Is that what that's hanging around your neck? And uh, I'll never forget his response. I think that's why I remember this. Um, he brightened up, and he said, well, direct quote, it's whatever you want it to be. <laughs> it's not quite the response I was expecting, but I was in a secular, large uh, university campus environment in the early 90s, and so I was, okay, I, I get the whole relativism thing. I mean, that was not new, so I kind of said, all right, and, and maybe in my sort of... Um, probably pedantic and childish, um, <laughs> truth-oriented sort of way, I said, oh, well, it looks like the quick-release lever to a bicycle. <laughs> and his countenance fell a little bit. I think he was a little disappointed, but he just sort of shrugged, and he said, well, if that's what you want it to be. <laughs> and that was the end of the conversation. We, we went to work. Now, there are several things in life um, 
<laughs> that uh, are probably open to interpretation, and it just really doesn't matter. Um, many artistic things, um, certainly uh, personal decorations, they're uh, subject to personal taste and opinion, what, what we think looks good or not, or whatever. Um, and, and that's fine. I mean, it doesn't really much matter. But it does raise an interesting question that's not just for the philosophy classes on college campuses. Um, is everything infinitely uh, malleable? I mean, in other words, can we, can we like pour whatever meaning we want into everything in life? Is it all sort of devoid of meaning? Is, is everything that you encounter sort of like a, a blank sheet of paper that, that, that we sort of scrawl out and sketch out our own meaning as we see fit? It's a good question. And the reason I ask it is because that is the question that is behind what Jesus talks about in today's passage as he deals with the weighty and very personal subject of marriage and divorce. He is declaring that marriage has a meaning that is defined by God. So it's not infinitely malleable in terms of what it means or what it stands for, what it is. Um, but perhaps even more interestingly, um, he's declaring that um, people, that, that his people, uh, he's not just talking about society in general, he's directly addressing, if you recall, his disciples in this Sermon on the Mount, those who have pledged themselves to follow him as their Lord and Savior. And he says, even amongst those who have pledged to follow me, whether they're married or unmarried, oftentimes, God says, my own people have a very different, uh, perceive a different meaning of marriage. And by the way, that's not just true starting in like the 1950s or 60s. That was true in the Jewish Middle East of the first century. We are well now into the uh, practical part of the Sermon on the Mount and as we've mentioned, the, Jesus starts this um, best-known sermon in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 in the Gospel of Matthew um, with three essential principles. And then he spends the rest of the sermon applying those principles to multiple practical areas of life, including today. By way of reminder, and especially if you haven't been with us since the beginning of this series a few weeks ago, those three principles are uh, up on the screen there. The first and foremost is that in Jesus coming to the world, two worlds are colliding. We saw this with uh, the, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, where Jesus is sketching out a completely different value system. He's saying there's a whole different world, God's truth, God's principles, that mankind has separated itself from. We have separated ourselves from, and so we are now living in a world that is opposed to that. And when God comes into this world in the form of Jesus, his world is invading our world. Two worlds are colliding, but because they're so often at odds, that collision gets kind of messy sometimes. Um, there's, there's occasionally shrapnel and friction between the message and the heart of the kingdom of God and the message and the heart of the world in which we live. And that led to the second principle, which is that disciples of Jesus, or what we simply call today Christians, those of us who have pledged ourselves to Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, we have a job, we have a task in this world, and it is to represent the truths and the values and the message of the kingdom of God in the kingdom of this world. Jesus had said, you are the salt of the earth to his disciples. You are the light of the world sent in to represent this new kingdom as ambassadors. 
But since the collision of worlds is often full of friction and sometimes um, a, a, a rough kind of smack, uh, representing one world and another is a very tricky and difficult proposition. It's hard. It's hard because we're sinful and we're imperfect. And so that led us to the third principle, that Christ himself is the key to living out that calling. Where he had told us, I have come not to abolish the law, God's rules in the Old Testament, but he said, I come to fulfill them. I come to do what the Old Testament law was designed to do, which was take God's people and make them a holy people that reflected him to the world. But it didn't do that because it's just a bunch of rules. And so he says, I've come to do what the rules could not do. I've come to make you a holy people. I keep the rules in your place perfectly so that you can be forgiven of your sins. And then my spirit invades your heart to give you a whole new heart and make you a new person, able to obey and follow God, able to represent him in this collision of worlds. That's the Sermon on the Mount in about a two-minute summary. And then the rest of these next you know, two and a half chapters, he's going to take that and apply it to multiple practical areas of life. We're asking the question, since his world is invading our world, how does that shape my world as a follower of Jesus? So this morning, as he applies this to a specific debate that was going on in his day, we'll talk about that in just a second, regarding marriage and divorce, we're really going to do just um, a couple of simple things. First of all, we're going to look, as we usually do, at um, the essential message that Jesus is conveying about what God is teaching. There's an essential truth and principle. Um, but we're going to do something a little bit different this morning because of the nature of the subject matter. Partway through the sermon, I'm going to hit a big pause button on our walk through this short text, and we're going to have a big parenthesis to deal with an issue that is related, and it's important for us to deal with, although it's not directly referenced in this morning's passage. And then we're going to come back and see how this applies, okay? So that's where we're headed. The truth, a big parenthesis, and then how this shapes our lives as those who profess to be Christ's followers. So with that in mind, let's dive into the truth. There are two opposing value systems, and Jesus seeks to reframe his listeners' understanding of marriage. In verse 31, he says, It was also said, or, or you had heard it said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus is doing something there um, that it's important to understand. There's, there's a little bit of cultural and historical background we need to understand what's taking place here. Fortunately, it's very easy to understand. What Jesus is doing here is he's wading right into the middle of a debate that was raging in his day amongst Jewish society in the Middle East. Um, it was a very live issue. It was something people were talking about. It was very close to the surface or right on the surface of most of their thinking. And Jesus sort of cues that debate up and he walks right into the middle of it. It would be sort of like if Jesus showed up today and said, you know, I want to talk about, um, and, and he's like in modern America, he says, I want to talk about U.S. immigration policy. And like, ooh, all the hairs in the back of our heads stand up and we all get tense because we're all debating that, right? And we all have strong feelings about it. Or, or if he came in and he said, I want to talk about um, gay marriage or whether or not Christian bakers should bake wedding cakes, you know, and we're like, whoa, okay. It just immediately brings up something that we're all thinking about and hearing about and talking about. That's what was going on here. This, this comment of his is not coming out of the blue. Now, the debate was a debate on what is the nature of marriage, and particularly, when can a marriage end? 
And to make a long story short, the debate was between two different um, schools of thought. There were some Jewish rabbis, again, these were all um, within the context of Jewish people who read the Old Testament and claimed to be the people of God and to follow the Old Testament. One school of thought was much more liberal, you would say. It basically said, um, based on a, a reading of Deuteronomy chapter 24, you can go back and read that yourself later, verses 1 through 4, Deuteronomy chapter 4, where Moses, who's writing Deuteronomy, basically says, hey, if a man divorces his wife um, because she displeases him since he found some impropriety in her or impurity in her, and he gives her a certificate of divorce, blah, 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 and then it goes on. Well, the rabbis of Jesus' day <clears throat> had taken those and were trying to parse those words and figure out what does that imply about when it's okay with God to get a divorce. And there was a big debate about this. Um, the debate coalesced around two rabbis who were a little older than Jesus, but if I remember correctly, they were actually both alive during his time. This was a very contemporary debate. Uh, one rabbi by the name of Shammai championed the view that basically that means, um, those words in Deuteronomy 24 mean that a marriage can end whenever the husband says it ends. Not the wife, sorry ladies, it was a pretty patristic society back then. The men had much more power than the ladies did. But they, he sort of leaned on that word of if a husband chooses to divorce his wife because she displeases him. So that could really pretty much mean anything. So as long as he does it the right way and gives her a legal certificate of divorce, um, then, then he's keeping the law of God and he's fine. You can, a marriage can end whenever husband says, essentially, it ends with virtually no justification. About as close to modern no-fault divorce as you can get, except only men could do it. Now, the other school of thought was much more restrictive um, it basically said, well, well no, it, it has to do with that word of like impurity, and that was taken to mean sexual impurity, or she's been maritally unfaithful. So if a husband discovers either during the betrothal period, which was roughly equivalent to our engagement, uh, or during the marriage itself that his wife has committed adultery, then at that point the marriage is over. In fact, it was assumed in Jewish law that the marriage would be over at that point. There wasn't even a discussion. For that reason, the marriage ends and then the husband divorces his wife. And so those were the two schools of thought. Can you divorce your wife as a guy for any reason, or does it have to only be for sexual impropriety? Well, Jesus wades right into the middle of that debate by pointing out that both of them are asking the wrong question. Very similar to what we discussed last week, with that whole topic of uh, lust. Jesus is applying the same thinking over and over again to different areas of life. And he's saying you're both... The, the problem with whether, the way everybody's thinking in this debate is both sides are, are, are asking the wrong question. They're essentially asking, when is it okay with God that a marriage ends? Like, that's the question that's consuming everybody's thinking. That's the question everybody's focused on. That's the question that all of, it, all of the energy is going toward, and it dominates our thinking. When is it okay that a marriage ends? And one camp says, well, you can only go a little ways away from uh, God's ideals for marriage before uh, it's okay to end it. And another camp said, no, you can go much further. But they're both just debating about the distance. Jesus says, at one level, it sounds like these two camps are opposed to one another, but in actually, they're just two different versions of the same thing. One just goes a little further than the other one does. They're both oriented away from the burning hot center of God's glory in marriage, and instead, they're consumed with how far can I get away from that and still be okay with God? 
That's the mindset he's been challenging ever since the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to continue to challenge it over and over again on every subject he addresses, and he does it here. He seeks to, to reframe the entire debate, as it were, for his followers. He's addressing his disciples and saying there's a different and a better way to think about this. Now, that different and better way is very clear in Matthew chapter 19, and so I want to encourage us to keep a finger in Matthew chapter 5 for a moment and flip over with me briefly to Matthew chapter 19. A few pages to your right. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is asked the exact same question. This is a different occasion. It's later on. But he's asked the exact same question, and he answers it in exactly the same way, although he uses more words in the chapter 19 version. And so it helps us understand his thinking a little more clearly. That's why I take us here before we go back to Matthew 5. Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. Uh, Some Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So we already know the cultural background of their contemporary day as to where that question is coming from. And here was Jesus' answer. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, alluding to Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter of the Bible, And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They're directly quoting Genesis chapter 2. So, Jesus says, they, a married couple, are no longer two, but one flesh. And then what often gets quoted in classic wedding ceremonies, what? Therefore, God is joined together. Let not man separate. Do you notice how Jesus there answers their question without directly answering their question? He does answer their question, but he reframes it first, and then he answers it. He essentially says to these religious teachers of his day, you guys are asking the wrong question. The right question for the people of God is not, when can this end? Is it here or is it clear over here? The right question is, how can we do God's heart for marriage? That's the right question. These guys were going back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, the fifth book in the Bible. Jesus says you need to go back further. Start with the first book of the Bible. Good night. Start with the first chapter of the Bible. And that's where we get God's heart and God's intentions for not only creating humanity, but also creating marriage. And he is explaining here something the Bible consistently explains over and over and over again from the beginning to the very end. God's purposes for marriage. In a nutshell, they are this. Jesus already started quoting from uh, from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, which says, For this reason, a man and a woman get married. And the reason is the creation of Eve being presented to Adam and God bringing them together in the very first marriage. In other words, marriage is deeply rooted in our two-gendered nature as male and female. And it is a lifelong, one-flesh relationship between a man and a woman before God. Jesus says that, that's, that's the teachings of Scripture. That's how God is telling us he put us together. There's something about 
marriage that is actually built into human nature. That doesn't mean every person has to be married necessarily, but it means that by our very design as a human race in a two-gendered group of people, a two-gendered race, we are created for this lifelong one-flesh relationship that is described in the first couple chapters of the Bible. And then he says, interestingly, this is all part of what it means that God created us in his image. When he alluded to uh, Genesis chapter 1, he said, have you not read that God made them male and female? That's a quote from Genesis chapter 1. God created man, mankind meaning, in his image, in the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. The Bible is saying part of what it means to be a, a people that, that image and reflect God is, is in our maleness and our femaleness and how those two work together in complementary ways. That's not all of what it means to be in God's image, but that's part of it. That's part of it. The human race was created to image God, to reflect him to the world around us. And part of the way we reflect him has to do with our maleness and femaleness, and marriage is bound up with all of that. So in other words, marriage from the very beginning of the Bible is designed to reflect certain truths about God, about who he is, about his character, about what he's like. That's its primary purpose. That may not be the main thing most of us have in mind when we envision walking down the aisle to say, I do someday. But the Bible says that's God's primary purpose for it. That same idea carries throughout the entire Bible consistently from beginning to end with remarkable consistency. Uh, In the Old Testament, for example, just one of many we could give, God depicts his relationship with his people through uh, the Old Testament prophets. When you read the Old Testament prophets, some of the stories are actually really kind of funny. I mean, they, they were like show and tell guys. God would have them act out things and, and you know, cut their hair and, and communicate their message by doing all these visual things to themselves. One of those crazy scenes that God had one of his prophets act out, a guy by the name of Hosea, and you can read about it, the Old Testament book that bears his name, is God tells Hosea, a single man, he says, I want you to tell my wayward people, the ancient Israelites, that they need to repent and come back to me, and I want to depict this broken relationship between me and them because they have sinned and left me. And here's how I'm going to do it, Hosea. I want you to represent me as God. You're the prophet. You're going to speak my words. I want you to go and find a prostitute and marry her, an unrepentant prostitute, a a, a woman who sells her sexuality for money and who hasn't said that she's going to stop doing that. But I want you to take her as your wife. And Hosea does it, because God said so. It's crazy. And then sure enough, she commits uh, marital unfaithfulness after the marriage. And God tells Hosea, go back and win her back. And why is he making this guy do this? Why is he telling him to enter essentially a really bad marriage from the get-go? Because it's a picture, God says, of what it's like for me as God to relate to my faithless people. And as we see Hosea going back to get his wife, we see some things about the character of God, his faithfulness, his patience, his grace, and his mercy to pursue and woo back a faithless people. But we also learn something about God's experience. By depicting this in in the form of of a man in a relationship, marriage, that many of us have experienced, God invites us to imagine what it's like for him to relate to a people that is so faithless and sinful. 
You see, the point is that marriage is designed to reflect things about God and his people. And this comes around full circle in the New Testament as well. Nowhere perhaps more clearly in Ephesians chapter 5, which says that marriage depicts the relationship of Christ himself with his church. It's that same Old Testament idea, God's relationship with his people. The church is Christ's people. Jesus provides for, protects, sacrificially serves, and is undeservingly faithful to his people, even when we're faithless in return. So you see, covenant faithfulness, a commitment, lifelong commitment between a man and a woman, is actually saying something much greater than either one of those two people. It's actually saying something about God and his character as it relates to us. That's, that's God's purpose for marriage. And you can see this kind of main principle, this first principle, the Sermon on the Mount, the two worlds are colliding. He's saying, here's one example of it. There are two completely different understandings of marriage, even amongst my own people. We're often living out a view of marriage that says it's, a, it's about a relationship between two people that, in their case, is ultimately about the husband being happy. And in our case, modern day, we're a little more egalitarian about it. It's about both people being happy. And God says happiness is one of the blessed byproducts of a healthy marriage, but the ultimate purpose is not the happiness of the spouses. The ultimate purpose is that your relationship would reflect things about me, that it would reflect the gospel to the world around us. We can also then see in his response, back to Matthew chapter 5 now, the second principle in the Sermon on the Mount, that Christians are called to live out God's values in this world, the values of the kingdom of God in the kingdom of this world. What he essentially tells the disciples in verse 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, we'll come back to that in a second, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What he is saying is that divorce severs the permanent one flesh union God created, which is the main thing he wants his followers focused on. In other words, Jesus is even more strict than the more restrictive rabbinical position of his day. Rather than assuming that in a case of marital unfaithfulness, the marriage is over, Jesus even holds out hope that a marriage doesn't have to end in that case, although he certainly says that may constitute an exception. A divorce may end because of marital unfaithfulness, but even then, that is a concession. It's an exception. He doesn't say it has to end, which in their day it would have. He says if we're actually running full on toward the burning hot center of God's glory and how we can best reflect God, there is hope, although it's very painful and very difficult, that a marriage could recover even from sexual unfaithfulness. It doesn't even have to end in that case. So what he's trying to do is reframe their view of the whole topic, running as hard and fast as possible toward the blazing center of God's glory rather than asking how far we can run away from his glory and still be okay so that's his, his main principle and his main point. Now at this point, I want to pause and open the parenthesis I talked about a couple minutes ago. Uh, there is a much discussed and debated exception clause in here. If anyone divorces a, a woman, except for marital unfaithfulness. Um, well, does that mean that there are some times when a, a, a divorce may be legitimate and God says a marriage may be ended even in God's eyes. Let me just say two things in this parenthesis. Um, 
because that's a, a much, much bigger can of worms than we can completely open today. And I know that that touches so many of us in so many ways, in so many specific um, instances. And there's, there's no way we could say enough words this morning in this format to kind of satisfy all our questions. So let me say this much. Let me say this much. First of all, when I talk about the pattern of thinking that Jesus is following here, which gives us the model to follow. And then I want to address one specific issue briefly that's not in the text, but I think needs to be said, and then we'll get back to the text, okay? Two points in the parenthesis. First point, what is Jesus' pattern of thinking? Well, we've already seen it. We've already seen it. Jesus describes God's purposes for marriage. He takes everybody all the way back to Genesis 1 and all the way back to Genesis 2. He says, let's start there. This is for those of us that claim to be God's followers. We claim to want to be his servants. We claim that he is our Lord. We claim that we want to trust him as good and know that he has made us a specific way. And so we look to him for instructions on how he has made us and we seek to the best of our ability and by his empowerment to live that out. Now, if that's us, he says, then let's go back to the beginning and see God's positive purposes for marriage and make that the overall focal point of everything that we do. And so he describes what those purposes are and he calls his disciples to share that same heart. Then, he now applies that thinking to a specific debate that was going on in his day. Specifically, a relatively easy um, view of divorce and how to end a marriage. He says, how does this view of marriage square with the way we think in our first century Jewish society about divorce? That's what he's doing here. He's applying it to that question, that raging debate of his day. Now, what that means is that in a broken and sinful world, other situations may exist in which a marriage ends even in God's eyes, not man's. Jesus is applying the truth of marriage to the specific debate of his day. That doesn't mean that's the only situation to which it applies. Uh, the Apostle Paul very likely indicates one such other situation in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We don't have time to look that up this morning, but if you'd like to read it, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, in which the church in first century Corinth was dealing with a, a new situation where you had two people who were not Christians, they got married, and then later one of them becomes a Christian, and now the other spouse, who is not a Christian, eventually says, I want to divorce you and I want to leave. And then now Christian spouse says, well, wait a minute, Jesus made it clear I'm not supposed to divorce, but my husband, say, wants to divorce me, so what do I do? And the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that he follows the same pattern of reasoning he saw in Jesus. He goes back to God's original purposes in marriage, and then he says, but you know what? Jesus didn't overtly address this particular situation, so here's how we should handle it, and he applies it to that particular situation. The point is simply this. I think we should be careful not to assume that a given situation in somebody's personal life either is or is not an exception to God's rule, which is very clearly, don't divorce if you're one of my followers. Embrace the lifelong covenant faithful commitment of marriage. It can be easy for some of us to assume that nothing is an exception. That might be true. That's something Christians continue to seek to debate and understand as we seek to understand God's word. Others can tend to assume that almost anything is an exception. But wherever we tend to fall, we should probably be careful not to assume, but to step back and to prepare ourselves to do some biblically disciplined, deep breath thinking 
about how God's truths about marriage, which are very clear, might apply to the particular situation of my marriage or my friend's marriage, which may not be immediately clear, and seek to apply that truth with wisdom and the help of other mature Christian brothers and sisters to a given situation. Second point in the parenthesis. One thing I specifically want to mention that I don't think is being addressed here in this text at all. It's pretty clear it's not. But unfortunately, in our day and age, it has to be. And that is that there are numerous cases right here in our community where genuine abuse takes place in relationships. Not every time a husband and wife hurt each other is necessarily abuse, but there is genuine abuse. It has many forms, and it is far too prevalent and common in our community right now. And we're not so blind to think that it's not even existing within our church membership. Let me just say that genuine abuse in a relationship is never okay. It's never okay. And nothing in the Bible should be used to try to justify the sinful and abusive mistreatment of a spouse, of anybody. So, if you're in an abusive relationship, or you think you might be, because sometimes when you're in the middle of it, it can be really hard to sort all that out. Or, if you know someone who you think is, or might be, in an abusive relationship, you need to reach out and get some help. And that needs to be said. You need to get some help. Thankfully, while nothing in this world is perfect, we happen to live in a society in which there is help available. And actually, in your bulletin this morning, uh, there is a list of some resources that are available to people who may be in abusive relationships. And I want to do something a little unusual. This is maybe the only time I'll encourage you to do something with your phone during a sermon other than read the Bible on your phone. I would like you to take that, especially members. Can I ask you to do this? If, if Harvest is your home church, would you take that bulletin home, or maybe even right now, just take some of that information down and put it in your contact list. I, I mean, Lord willing, you'll never need it. Um, hopefully you'll never need it. Think of like a fire insurance policy for your house, right? You buy one and you hope to never use it, but in a horrible event, your house catches fire, you're glad you had it. There are some places to turn for help. Take it down. Hopefully, God willing, you'll never need it or you'll never even know somebody who does. But if you do know somebody who does, sometimes you can feel like I don't even know where to turn. There are places uh, to turn. There's a few things listed in there. This is not at all a comprehensive list, but they're great places to start. Uh, certainly, any, pretty much any Christian counselor will be trained to help people understand what abuse is and isn't. And if they're in an abusive relationship, help them think about it and get some help. Um, if you can call anyone, 30 seconds on Google is your friend. Just Google Christian counselors in Washington County. You'll get all kinds of help. Uh, there are a couple of organizations we've listed there. Uh, ARMS, Abuse and Recovery Ministry Services, I think it is, uh, as well as the Oregon Coalition Against Domestic and Sexual Violence. 
Uh, one of those is a ministry organization, the other is not. Both of them have multiple resources. They have websites that are set up and designed for confidentiality, uh, easy access. There are phone numbers you can call that are all set up for confidentiality. If you need to just say, I need some help, I don't know where to start, there are resources available. And certainly you should always feel free to contact any of our ministry staff, uh, Sandy Burgess, or any of the other pastors uh, or elders of our church. We can help on-ramp you into some of these other uh, resources if you need it. And last thing I want to say on this is, as I say, Lord willing, you'll never need this stuff. Um, but there's probably an even higher likelihood that you will know somebody who might need it than you may need it yourself. And one of the best ways we can help one another, if we feel like something may be off and we just don't know where to go, that gets overwhelming and we just don't say anything and that's not helpful. Knowing that there's at least some people you can call, make the call, help them make the call, help them contact the counselor, help them get on the website, help them call the church office or talk to one of the pastoral staff. It's one of the ways that we can help each other. Okay, close parenthesis. Are you with me? <laughs> I know this is heavy. I gotta admit, I, I'm not excited to talk about this stuff. I'm pretty sure none of you rolled out of bed jazz to talk about things like this, but it's real. Um, and we need to be aware and we have an opportunity to be people of truth and grace within the context. Having said that, the debate of Jesus' day was not about abuse, not the debate he's entering, and that's not what he's talking about here. So I'd like to close the parenthesis and return to the passage to talk about what he is discussing, which is that society's general low view of marriage as evidenced by how easy it was for them to want to end marriage. And he's trying to reframe that and say to his disciples, marriage has a higher purpose. Live those values. So we've already seen the first principle. Two worlds are colliding. What is God's view of marriage? We've seen that. Secondly, Christians represent God's world in this world. So he says, live that view of marriage. Reorient yourself, if you're my follower, to God's blazing glory as it is shown in marriage. And let's start there. Thirdly, and lastly, how is Jesus the key to living this out? How is Jesus the key to living this out? His world is invading our world, so how does that shape my world if I'm a follower of Christ? Let's be honest. Living this stuff out is really hard. Even if you're, mar if you're, if you're married and even if your marriage is doing all right, like, this is hard. What do we do and how can I become the kind of person, whether I am, if I'm a Christian, whether I'm married or not, whether I'm divorced or not, where do, where do I find myself? Where do I locate myself in this story? The fact that Jesus is the key to living this way means that he is both our Savior who forgives us and he is our empowerer who enables us to live for him. And so as we turn the corner and get even more practical, let me close with three thoughts. First of all, if I'm a Christian seeking to reframe my view of marriage even more, what should I do? I'm a slide behind. It always happens to me, especially when I've lost my voice. There we go. First of all, repent of sin. Secondly, to receive forgiveness, which is a separate step. Lastly, the encouragement to rely on Christ. Let's talk about what these might look like here for just a couple of minutes. First of all, to repent of any sin that I have in my own heart and in my own attitude and in my own beliefs about marriage and divorce. By the way, this applies to every Christian. We're not just talking to Christians who are divorced here. We're talking to every Christian. Christians who are married, Christians who are not married, Christians who have never been married, Christians who have been multiple married. 
Christians who will never be married. Here's the question. Have I, as a Christian, always seen marriage as reflecting God, first and foremost? No. (laughs) Have I always seen marriage, my marriage, if I'm married, as saying things primarily about him? None of us have. Not all the time. Probably not even most of the time. When my wife Amy and I got married, our wedding was full of God's glorious purposes of marriage. We, we had a ceremony that made it clear that our marriage isn't just about us. We kind of started that way because we read the Bible and we believed it. But I've got to say, and having been married for over 20 years to this lovely lady, often the first thing on my mind, whether things are like going really well between us at the moment, then I'm just kind of happy. And she seems happy and I'm happy and that's great because that's all that matters, right? How did I start thinking that way? God doesn't often enter my mind. And then if there is something between us, if we've hurt one another's feelings or we've got an unresolved conflict we're having to work out, all I'm thinking about is how can we work it out or how can I get my way and make her admit she's wrong or, you know, whatever stupid thing I'm thinking (laughs) at the time. And it's like my goal is just, you know, it's like me and it's us and, and how happy are we with this relationship right now? And often what this is saying about God is not the first thing that comes to my mind. But when I read the Bible, it's exactly the first thing that should come to my mind. Every marriage is the joining of two sinners. And we bring our sin right into our marriages. That looks different in every case, but it's the same issue. We all bring our sin into the marriage and it manifests itself. Friends, we don't need to own our spouse's sin, but we do need to own our own. The temptation so often is to rationalize my sinful behavior my harsh words, my bitter thoughts, my vindictive spirit because of what he did or what she did. But you know what? One of the clearest defining marks of whose spirit is in control of my life right now, is it my spirit or God's spirit? One of the clearest ways to tell is how quickly conviction of sin comes up because that's one of the Holy Spirit's primary jobs. He convicts the world of sin, Jesus tells us. It's a strong indication that the Holy Spirit of God is in control of your life as a Christian when you are seeing not only your spouse's sin, which is probably real, but you're also seeing your own. And rather than saying, well, they did this, this, and that, so therefore I'm justified, I'm saying, yeah, they did this, this, and that. I'm not going to call a wrong right, but you know what? That made me respond this way, and that's on me. And God's dealing with me there. When that happens, that is beautiful. That is beautiful. So we need to repent of any sin we have in our marriages because we all have them or in our attitudes toward marriage even if we're not married. Secondly, to receive God's forgiveness. To receive God's forgiveness. The Bible, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, says that God uh, is faithful to forgive and cleanse us from every sin if we confess it. That's that first step. So we repent of sin. We confess to God that it's wrong. But you know what? Oftentimes... We don't end up feeling necessarily like God has completely forgiven us. Guilt and shame may rear their ugly heads, but the Bible says if you've confessed your sin as a Christian before your God, you've, he's faithful, he will. You don't have to wonder, did he not forgive this one? I'm not really sure, how do I know? He says he's going to do it, he forgives. You're cleansed. My sin, the Old Testament says, has been removed from me as far as the east is from the west. It's gone. And yet I can still feel the guilt of it. 
When we talk about receiving forgiveness, it means recognizing that it is gone as far as east is from the west. Whether that sin is a better attitude or whether that sin is actually the initiation of a divorce that I now look back on and I say, I'm not sure that was a biblical thing. No matter how big or small I think the sin is, when I have sin, I confess it genuinely. God says, I will forgive it. It's over. Dare I say, it is finished. Receive that. Dwell on the love of Christ that God has for you. So strong that he shed his blood to change your destiny and free you from guilt and shame and sin. The interesting thing is sometimes passages like this, when we talk about them in churches and hard topics like this, they kind of make us even unintentionally and sometimes unaware sort of divide Christians into two camps. Like the issue is so heavy, we immediately try to figure out which side of the issue we're on. And if I'm a Christian who's never divorced, I feel like, oh, that's heavy, but at least I'm safe. But then that makes me kind of almost start to subtly think differently of Christians who are divorced. Maybe without me even realizing it. But the Bible puts us all in one camp. Sinners in desperate need of grace. Put it this way, if you ever feel like, for this or any other reason, frankly, that you're a second-class Christian because of what's gone on in my past, and I look around my church and I perceive that very few other people, or at least it seems like very few other people have had this black mark on them, this scarlet A or this scarlet D or whatever it may be in this case, embroidered on their shirt. And so I sort of feel like a second-class Christian. I feel like I'm stuck back in that second-class compartment. Take courage in the fact that according to the Bible, if you ever mustered up the gumption to walk forward and wipe the window and peer into that first-class cabin to see who's really there, it would be empty. You turn around, you realize every Christian is back here with me. People say, should there be second-class Christians at church? Yeah, absolutely. What there shouldn't be is first-class Christians. <laughs> We're all second-class Christians. Receive his forgiveness and understand that he meant it when he said he's faithful and just to cleanse. Lastly, relying on Christ. He said he came to fulfill the law, to make us the kind of people who can reflect him better than we can on our own, to put his spirit in us, to empower us to live in a righteous way, regardless of our present, regardless of our past, a future that is more God-honoring and reflecting than our past has been because of his power in us. These topics are weighty. The whole point, because the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is to raise the bar impossibly high. Jesus is trying to shock his first century Jewish audience out of their tendency to lower the bar of God's standards through legalism down to, to kind of tame God's law down to a level that they can achieve. He says, nope, it's unachievable, so that we will come broken and repentant and say, Jesus, forgive me, but then also fill me. He came to not put the standards of God down on a low enough shelf that we can actually reach them. He actually came to put them back up on the impossibly high shelf where they belong, and then to pick us up on his shoulders and lift us up so that we can reach him, because he's the only one tall enough to get up there. Let the Spirit of Christ in you, pray desperately for the Spirit of Christ in you to give you a new heart, whether you're single, married, unmarried, divorced, whatever, young, older, it doesn't matter, to give you a new heart where your sin exists in this issue, to live out God's purposes for marriage, whatever that may mean.
because only God is tall enough. Friends, every one of us, in conclusion, has sin. God makes no bones about that. But he says the path is not to lower the bar so that we feel better. The path is to find healing and redemption in Christ. And right now we have the opportunity to come to the communion table. I just want to ask the ushers to get up and go uh, prepare.